0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have a Dinosaur of the Day, Nipponosaurus.
1: Continuing with our Jurassic World dinosaur theme.
0: Yes. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons and other patrons who get shoutouts for their continued support. And this week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, and Oliver E.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate you so much.
0: Yes, it really means a lot to us to get your support. And we released our first piece of premium content. We (laughs) we mentioned recently that we were setting a new goal when we got to a certain amount, we would release monthly premium content to our patrons. But last week when we had our interview with the Dino Geek, The interview was just too long to fit into the episode, so we released the full unedited or minimally edited version to all of our patrons. So if you liked that interview and want to hear a longer version, which gets into a lot more detail about Tony's background, some of the interviews that he's done, some of his different favorite toys and things like that, then become a patron and you will get access to it.
1: Oh yeah. And he's got some great stories. He
0: does have some really good stories. That's the problem. We had probably an hour and 20 minute long interview with him and we just, we didn't want to stop it because there was so much good stuff going. But at a certain point it was like, okay, we can't put an hour and 20 minute interview into a show that has like 40 minutes of other content. (laughs) It just seemed like too unbalanced. So we needed to edit it down. But for anybody who's interested, definitely check out our Patreon.
1: Yep. Patreon.com slash I Know Dino.
0: Jumping into the dinosaur news. We've got lots of good stuff this week. Starting off with a new dinosaur. Woo!
1: Oh, and it's an ankylosaur.
0: Not this one, but there are ankylosaur dinosaurs coming up later. Spoiler (laughs) alert.
1: Sorry.
0: (laughs) I guess it's not really a spoiler alert because we tweeted about it like a week ago. The problem with this show, too, sometimes is we tape the show generally on Thursdays or Fridays, and then we edit it until the next Wednesday. So there's a little bit of a lag between news and the show coming out. So if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter or any of those places, then you get the news from us when it actually happens. And then we try to go into more detail in the actual show. So that's sort of the strategy. And sometimes we don't even put everything in the show because there are local events and things like that. And we're not going to talk about an upcoming event when it already passed because that's pointless especially if you're interested in local dinosaur attractions like those animatronic things that seem to be everywhere (laughs) then you should follow us so that you can get it on time because a lot of times by the time the show gets edited it's long gone anyway there's this new dinosaur it's an iguanodontian. it was found in inner mongolia china and it was published in science bulletin and written by Xu xing and others this one is named Bayanurosaurus perfectus, and Bayanur is the area it was found in. I think that's how you say it. It seems like the way that a Mongolian sort of accent would do it, I hope. <laughs> and then perfectus is because it's such an amazing skeleton, and it was preserved so well. So Bayanurosaurus has a combination of non-hadrosauriform and hadrosauriform features.
1: So everything
0: it, well, <laughs> I should say specifically they're talking about ankyloplexians and that is, oh man, that word, ankyloplexians <laughs> means stiff thumb and basically if you think about iguanodon and the spike thumb that it has, that's kind of the original ankyloplexian and there's a whole group of dinosaurs that evolved in that group and have this sort of stiff thumb going. So... Anyway, it's a specific group turned into hadrosaurs later, that's a subgroup of ankyloplexians, very specific down in the weeds stuff, I'm not going to go any more into it. It turns out though that these ankyloplexians are uncommon in Asia, so it's a really important find and they believe that this one is a close relative to Aranosaurus, which is an iguanodont found in the early Cretaceous of Africa. This one is also from the early Cretaceous, not surprisingly. And the fossil is huge. It's about 8.6 meters or 28 feet from the tip of the beak to the tail, the way that it was found. And it was found in just such an amazing position.
1: More or less amazing than Borealopelta.
0: Much less amazing. (laughs) So it's amazing for an articulated skeleton, not amazing for really an overall fossil. It doesn't have any sort of preserved skin or stuff like that. It looked like it might have had maybe a little bit of keratin around the beak. I couldn't quite tell. I don't think they specifically mentioned it, but it the way that a kind of has that duck bill that isn't really duck bill because it has more keratin that kind of closes the mouth. There's been a couple blog posts about this recently. It looks like it might have a little bit of that part preserved, but I'm not sure. It might actually be bone. It's kind of hard to tell. But in any event, the skull is about 80 centimeters or three feet long, pretty big head. It's similar in size to an Iguanodon, which you're probably familiar with and is a pretty big dinosaur. And this one was likely an adult. We think that because it has a fused skull roof and the sutures in its vertebrae are also fused, meaning there's kind of these two parts of the vertebrae and when the animal is young, they're not fully fused together yet. They're sort of a little bit more mobile, but then over time they fuse together just like the skull of like a baby human over time you know it's got the soft spot and then later it fuses you see the same kind of thing in dinosaurs and this one was all fused together so we think it's an adult it was preserved in a sort of mid-stride quadrupedal looking position and by that i mean it's got its tail and its head are in a straight line back and then that distance between them again is 28 feet which is just amazing and that its forelimbs are both down underneath its body, sort of mid-stride looking, as well as its hind legs, and basically the entire animal fossilized. The skull is a little bit smashed up, and some parts around the chest and hands are missing, but other than that, it's really, really in good condition. It has a dental battery, which means that it probably ate plants. We've talked about those before. It's when you have a whole bunch of teeth in a row, and they're kind of used for grinding up plants. And they call it a facultative biped. That basically means that it's capable of walking on two legs, but mostly it spent its time on four legs. So in other words, it moved around like how we describe almost all hadrosaur type creatures walking on four limbs occasionally, maybe rearing up or running on two limbs if it had to or who knows.
1: Whatever was best for (laughs) eating or getting away from predators.
0: Yeah, whatever suits the situation although it would rest on all fours most likely. This specific specimen is being stored in the Inner Mongolia Museum of Natural History in Honhat, Inner Mongolia, and I really hope that the museum is open and that they present this specimen to the public soon because it just looks really amazing. I only saw pictures of it in the field, so I'm not sure if they've prepped it all out yet or what exactly they've done, but it's really exciting. And just in case my mentioning of ankyloplexia made you want more information, (laughs) they talk about it quite a bit in the paper because a lot of times they get into this sort of phylogenetic nitty gritty. They think that ankyloplexia started in North America in the late Jurassic, then moved into Europe, and then finally migrated over into Asia. They didn't mention Africa, which is weird since the one they think it's most closely related to is an African one. I assume that would have come in between Europe and Asia, but yeah, who knows? So (laughs) long story short, they think these started in North America. And on to our other new dinosaurs.
1: Now the Ankylosaur. (laughs) I'm surprised you didn't put it first.
0: Well, so there's a reason I didn't. Like I just said, the previous dinosaur was in amazing condition and is a new find and is really pretty exciting. This one is sort of one of these revision naming things. It's not really a new discovery per se. So it's a paper published by Paul Penkalski in a journal that I'm not going to try to say. I think it means...
1: Something in geology and paleontology.
0: Yeah. In German. Yeah, in German. And I'll just butcher it. So we'll have a link. (laughs) Basically... What Paul did was he systematically analyzed all of the late Cretaceous ankylosaurs and he ended up splitting out two new species that we haven't mentioned before. So there's Platypalta cumsi, which was found in 1914 by Barnum Brown and at the time or actually a little bit later it was assigned to Euplocephalus by Walter Coombs in 1971 which is the source of the name coombsi species name and then Platypalta the genus name means wide plate. And he gave it that name because of its wide osteoderms. Obviously, this dinosaur is incredibly similar to Euplocephalus, since they were synonymized for about 50 years there. So (laughs) there isn't really that much to say about it. It's about six meters or what is that, 19-ish feet long. And that's a big ankylosaur. What more do you need to say? So surprised. Well, the other thing is this is behind a paywall, so I couldn't get to all the source material. And there it included a lot of other information about other dinosaurs. So it doesn't really talk that much about these specific dinosaurs. It was kind of like an aggregate paper of all this different ankylosaur information that it's like, oh, by the way, these two look different enough. I think we should pull them out and give them their own genus and species.
1: Ah, I see. So there's not too much about it anyway. It's
0: not the kind of paper you get real excited about. (laughs) I didn't see any articles about this paper at all. I noticed it because it was on Dinosaur Mailing List, and I figured... They're new ankylosaurs, so they're exciting, but they're not the most exciting of discoveries. The other dinosaur that he named was Scolosaurus thronus, and Scolosaurus cutleri was named by Franz nopska back in 1928. So this genus already existed. This is just a new species within that genus, which means that he really thinks they're similar. <laughs> and... There really wasn't any other information I could find about it. It's just a slightly different variant. Probably some bone or osteoderm is slightly different. Maybe horns on the back of the head and therefore it's a new ankylosaur. But so similar that I couldn't even find a mention of what made it unique. (laughs) He also suggested revising some other ankylosaurs which have been synonymized recently. Clearly Paul is a splitter and not a lumper. So I guess we're kindred spirits in that way, since I'm usually a splitter and not a lumper.
1: And splitting ankylosaurs.
0: Yeah, and he's splitting ankylosaurs. That is pretty good. I should probably be more excited about this paper. That's why I'm
1: so surprised.
0: (laughs) I think it's just because there wasn't any good paleo art about it. It's not really a new discovery. It just, I don't know. Also, it being behind a paywall in an obscure journal that I didn't have access to kind of bummed me out. But yeah, so there's two more ankylosaurs. I think there might have even been more, depending on if you counted some of the synonymizing that happened in 2013. The other thing I should mention is he's the only author on the paper. A lot of times you see lots of authors on the paper. So I'm a little bit curious to see how people like Victoria Arbor or Phil Curry, who did some of the synonymizing recently in 2013 of different ankylosaurs, react to this paper. Maybe they look at it and they say, Wait a second, you're saying that this part's different, but we see that sort of variation within the species already, and therefore they shouldn't be their own species. So it's really hard to say if these are going to hold up considering it's gone back and forth already. We'll have to see. Up next, we've got some new trackways. These ones are pretty cool. They're published in Cretaceous Research, and the paper was led by Lita Shing, and there are a lot of other names some very well known like martin lockley on the list and what they found were 300 ish <laughs> new dinosaur tracks in china that's so many it is a lot there's so many dinosaur discoveries in china that it's you see a title like this and you're like yeah of course there's new discovery in china and people just glaze over it because you don't see it in the media that much and then you look into what it is and you're like 300 tracks mm-hmm. what that's crazy And it is crazy. So these were found in the Yishu fault zone in the Shandong province of China. They're early Cretaceous in age and a lot of them are Deinonychosaur or raptor tracks, meaning they basically look like two toes. And in the paper they talk about how it really looks like monodactyl tracks, meaning one toe. But then they say, nothing has one toe. how could this even be a thing? They're like, well, ostriches sort of look like they have one toe from their prints. So when you look closely at them, it looks like it's really just one big toe and a little bit of a toe off to the side. So they think it's Deinonychosaur because obviously raptors have the one claw sticking up off the ground. So the other two are the only ones that make the track. They also found a bunch of bird tracks, or as they call them, avian theropods.
1: (laughs) Is that included in the about 300 tracks?
0: Yes. There are also two types of sauropod tracks two types of ornithopod tracks, and unnamed turtle tracks.
1: We don't care about the turtle tracks.
0: I think it's kind of cool. But yeah, they didn't even bother naming them or anything. They just said there was some unnamed turtle tracks, <laughs> which I kind of find hilarious. They're spread across eight separate areas around some man-made ponds for surrounding farms, and they have an aerial shot of it. And it's literally like there's this huge man-made pond and a couple of little ponds off to the side, all this farmland around it, and then they highlight these areas pretty big areas around the ponds. And they're like, oh yeah, there's like 100 prints over here. There's another 50 over here. It's a pretty cool place to have a farm. I'm jealous. They unfortunately don't really find any fossilized bones in the area.
1: Doesn't that usually happen around trackways? Yeah,
0: it tends to be a different kind of soil or sediment that preserves tracks versus bones. So you rarely find the two together. When you do, it's really great because then you have a good chance at finding what actually made the track. And then you can kind of use it as a Rosetta Stone for future discoveries. But unfortunately, even though there have been over 700 what they call track makers in the area, they haven't found any bones, really. That number of 700 track makers is just astonishing. I guess in this one, I think they said there were at least 14 or something like that, because the trackways are sort of crisscrossed and they're in different spaces. And based on the size of the print and the direction they're heading, they'll name them as different track makers. So, you know, if they're going in different directions and they cross over each other, then you'd say, obviously, these are different animals making the tracks. Maybe theoretically it could be the same one, but it's pretty unlikely. So they named them as different track makers. And there are more than 700 of them just in this area of China. That's uh, I don't even know what to say about it. It's just crazy. You're lucky if you can find 700 tracks most places, let alone track makers. <laughs> Some of the Deinonychosaurs in the trackway appear to be trotting, or what they say as close running. And in the paper it says that they're traveling an estimated 7.16 to 8.64 kilometers per second, which is definitely impossible because seven to eight kilometers per second is approximately 30,000 kilometers an hour, which is moving like the flash from the so comic
1: book. Totally possible. The flash
0: can do it. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's a flash dynamic disorder. So I sent Lita a tweet asking him if that was a typo or basically assuming it is wondering if he meant kilometers per hour or meters per second because I figure those are the two most likely but unfortunately Lita didn't respond by the time of this recording so I'm going to assume that it was 8 meters per second or about 30 kilometers an hour or 18 miles per hour because that seems like a good number for running or trotting for a Deinonychosaur I think that's probably about right and that's pretty fast that would definitely catch me I could not run that I'd be dead so, <laughs> if they could run that fast, even at close running, and the close running word is really weird, but it actually makes a lot of sense because we've talked before about how dinosaurs and birds don't have a transition between walking and running like humans do
1: yeah it's very smooth
0: yeah you can really feel it when you go from running to walking and vice versa it's a whole other level of energy you have to start putting in
1: plus the way you breathe is different
0: yeah the way the rhythm of your feet go and all this kind of stuff you can really notice that you're starting to go airborne but birds have this perfectly smooth sort of transition they can just go it's like a analog dial They could be like, well, I want to go exactly halfway in between running and walking and they can just go that exact speed or slightly faster, slightly slower, whatever speed they want to go, they can very easily go. So seems like more at the upper end if it's close running, but I don't know. Also, it makes me wonder how fast they could go if 18 miles an hour is just like close running. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be a goner. That's really all I know. And up next is a really awesome biomechanics paper. And I had sort of hesitated to cover this one because we talked about a very similar article recently, but there was a great quote by Victoria Arbor on her blog, so I just had to do it. So she said, I've officially turned to the dark side and published some research on theropods and theropod feeding at that, thus making me a real paleontologist, TM. After more than a decade <laughs> at this, which I just thought was great. So that was on her blog, Pseudoplocephalus, which is also a pretty good pun. And this article was published in Current Biology by Angelica Torices and others, including Victoria Arbor, obviously. And basically what they did was they know that predators often have to get their prey into smaller pieces. And that's because a lot of times you can't swallow an animal whole. It's just... A fact of life for predators. <laughs> Except
1: for the predators that eat fish, they seem to swallow those. Whole yeah, more that's often. true.
0: I think part of that has to do with their teeth too, because they need the teeth for catching the fish, mm-hmm. and those teeth aren't great for breaking fish into pieces. Also, it might be kind of hard to chew underwater. Anyway, <laughs> tangent. We, we digress. So, if an animal has teeth, then there are kind of a few different methods that they can use, and obviously. In only rare cases do you have something like a T-Rex that can actually digest bone. So a lot of times they're not just chomping through it and eating the bone. So we're going to disregard that crazy T-Rex monster for now. <laughs> so Victoria on her blog showed a couple of cool videos. She had one of hyenas feeding. And really it reminded me a lot of playing tug of war with a dog. If you've ever done that, if you hold something out to a dog and it bites on one side and you pull on the other side, it twists. It tries to twist it out of your hand. And that's really how they chew in the wild, too. They sort of use this twisting motion to dig some of their teeth into the animal and rip with a twisting motion. Violent. Yeah. And then another one, it, this one wasn't on her site, but I have always find it fascinating, is the way that alligators eat. They basically bite and then sort of spin in a death roll, or sometimes they just forcefully fling their prey. There are all these videos of alligators that bite onto something and then just whip their head so hard that most of the animal goes flying either into the river or onto the bank of the river, and then they have the bite-sized piece remaining in their mouth, and they can swallow that.
1: And that's all they eat?
0: Well, then they go back and they try to get it. But if there are other alligators around, they'll come chomp on the full thing. And then they end up fighting over it and stuff. That's a pretty fascinating way to eat. In this case, though, the most relevant one is the way that Komodo dragons eat.
1: The feeding frenzy?
0: No, not that one. (laughs) The way that we mentioned it last week, which is the bite and pull. So we mentioned last week that there were these sort of markings and wear patterns on the bone of that t-rex foot that got defleshed if you remember and there were sort of lines caused by the denticles scraping along the toe bone or really the mid foot bone but in this case they looked at wear patterns on the teeth themselves to look for which way that the meat was being pulled and bitten so rather than being at the millimeter scale which you're at when you're looking at things like scrapes in a foot bone for denticles They were at the micrometer scale, looking for little tiny scratches in the teeth that show which way the meat was scraping up against the teeth. It's a really interesting idea, and it seemed to work pretty well. So they looked at a Troodon, a Dromaeosaurus, a Saurornithelestes, and a Gorgosaurus, and they compared the different sort of wear marks and the directions of them to figure out how they were biting and otherwise, you know, chewing off pieces of their prey that they couldn't swallow whole. Interestingly, these dinosaurs have relatively different shapes of their denticles. The denticles are those little serrations on their teeth, and the denticles are also different sizes. But they found that the scratches were pretty consistent. There was one set of scratches that sort of run along the side of the tooth, so if you drew a tooth... Like I could only draw, you know, just like the silhouette, that sort of V shape. It would be sort of a concentric V for lack of a better word, sort of along that V line, along the edges of the tooth, sort of parallel to the main surface of the tooth. And then there are also some that are oblique that sort of go in towards the tooth. And what they did was they compared these markings using some fancy analyses and they determined that the same conclusion as the paper we talked about last week, that they were using a puncture and pull methodology. Basically what that means is you bite down and then you use your whole neck and head and everything to just pull straight back until you rip off a chunk. Sounds like a lot of force. Yes, but not a lot of force on the jaw. Turns out this doesn't require much jaw muscle effort but it obviously requires quite a bit of body effort. And I guess you could even get your legs into it, you know, because as long as you're pulling backwards, it doesn't matter what part of your body you're using. You just clamp down and move backwards. And if you have serrated teeth, it seems like a pretty good way to go. They also think that the lack of pitting on the teeth support the hypothesis. Essentially, if an animal gnaws on bones, <laughs> it tends to get sort of these little tiny holes in their teeth. So you can see that in something like a I think a hyena might even have that where they're sort of chewing on the bone, but you don't see that in any of the dinosaurs that they looked at. They do say though, at least Victoria did in her blog post, that T-Rex is well known to eat bone and doesn't seem to have these pits either, which seems like a pretty big flaw. It's like the number 1 bone-eating dinosaur doesn't have these holes. Do you really expect them in any dinosaur at that point? And A lot of that's probably because teeth are constantly being replaced in dinosaurs. So what does it even matter? Don't have to worry. Oh man, it'd just be wonderful. I wish I had teeth that were constantly being replaced and I wish that I had feathers. Those are the two things I'm most jealous of dinosaurs for.
1: You would look so weird. (laughs) Yes,
0: I know. I would have a horrible smile (laughs) and I'd look like a monster, but (laughs) I wouldn't have to worry about sunscreen and I wouldn't have to worry about braces or brushing my teeth. So there we go. Who gets the last laugh? Answer me that. Mm, not me, me. <laughs> yeah not you that's true <laughs> <laughs> and then finally they mentioned that troodonted teeth were the most fragile of the group because this included a sort of force analysis so they've likely had to go after softer prey or prey that struggled less because otherwise they might wind up with broken teeth and i think in the past we've mentioned that troodon seemed to have a little bit more fragile teeth they have huge hooked denticles, though They look like really gnarly teeth, but apparently not the most robust. So there we go. If you ever want to do paleo art of a dinosaur eating, make sure it's doing the puncture and pull sort of biting and not some other sort of feeding mechanism.
1: Once you're a T-Rex, then you can just chomp. (laughs)
0: That's true. (laughs) You do whatever you want if you're a (laughs) T-Rex. Just swallow a leg hole. It doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) I'm glad they don't exist anymore.
0: (laughs) Me too. Swallow a human hole, really.
1: Moving on. (laughs) There's a story going around of an amazing four-year-old boy named Nathan Brown who lives in Calgary in Alberta, Canada, and he and his mom are raising money to help kids in Madagascar get fresh water. He is helping to do this by creating a zoo with his dinosaur toys, and he charges admission, And he's using those funds for his cause. And he's already raised almost $1,500 in about six weeks for the Aveda Institute. And he and his mom also participated in a six-kilometer walk for water, which is the average distance that women and children walk in Madagascar to get water. Just a long distance. Nathan got the idea to help when he was talking to his mom one day about getting fresh water out of the tap. And then his mom turned it into a teachable moment and said, you know, not everyone can get water out of the tap, so... That's an amazing four-year-old.
0: Yeah, to internalize that. I think most four-year-olds would be like, but I can. <laughs> and this kid's like, wait, they can't? What yeah. can I do about that? Yeah. How can I help?
1: And then came up with a plan and raised money. That's- <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Plus the pictures of his dinosaur zoo are really cute. It's basically just his z- dinosaur toys lined up in a zoo fashion <laughs> and charge admission. Give it to needy kids in Africa. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. In not-so-awesome news, we've got another dinosaur theft story. Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah, well, start with the happy news. So in Henderson, Louisiana, a velociraptor sculpture was stolen. The owners of the park are hoping that somebody comes forward, and they posted on their Facebook page, quote, we are asking for as much information as possible to help us to find the person or persons involved in breaking into the dinosaur exhibit, prehistoric park, that's the name of it, The Velociraptor is valued at a price that will make it a felony charge. We are willing to accept the undamaged items before noon tomorrow. This was a few days before since we are recording.
0: By noon like five days ago. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Without pressing criminal charges, please help. Not only is this a business, but it is a place for children to learn. Lots of children enjoy our exhibit and lots of schools come here for field trips. So we don't have an update. I haven't seen an update.
0: Where are all these dinosaurs going? People steal them like every week. Do they just keep them in their house?
1: I guess, or a secluded backyard.
0: What's the point? (laughs) I don't get it.
1: I don't know. A dare?
0: If you want one, just buy it from TRX Dinosaurs.
1: There you go. (laughs) That's the solution.
0: Or buy Yeah, just draw your own, make your own, do something. Stop stealing it.
1: Make your own zoo, charge admission, raise the money, buy your own.
0: These people clearly are not of that caliber.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But back to the happier news. On May 5th, the Virginia Living Museum in Newport News, Virginia, opened their new exhibit, Destination Dinosaur, and the exhibit runs until September 3rd. They have 11 animatronic dinosaurs, including T-Rex, and they also have seven what they call dinosaur-themed experiences, which includes a gallery, a dinosaur discovery trail, and photo opportunities. The museum is open every day from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and it costs $20, $15 for kids ages 3 to 12. Cool. Yeah, so if you're in the area and you go, let us know. In Kansas this spring, Silvasaurus chondrii, which is an ankylosaur, is back on display at the Kansas University Natural History Museum. The article said it was the only known dinosaur found in Kansas, but that's not actually true. It's There's another one called clausosaurus
0: yeah it's kind of funny because i saw this posted on reddit and someone was like clausosaurus has a bone to pick with you
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good one. anyway sylvasaurus the name means lizard of the forest and was found in 1955 on a farm when a rancher was checking on his cows and the rancher's name was warren condray that's why it's condray and he called his state senator, and the senator contacted Kansas University Natural History Museum. And in 1960, it was described as a new species, and it's pretty complete. They found the skull, lower jaw, teeth, neck bones, ribs, shoulder spikes, backbones, tailbone, leg, part of the pelvis. And Silvasaurus has now been refurbished, which is cool. So also on display is a section of its armor that visitors can actually touch. They also have a track site that was found nearby that might be Silvasaurus. And apparently that trackway was on display at Navy Pier in Chicago for DinoFest.
0: I wonder if they might have a point in that being the only dinosaur. I'm not sure if those are the only two, Silvosaurus and Klausosaurus. But I think Klausosaurus is believed to have washed out into either like a river or an inland sea or something. And therefore, they might say like, well, we don't know that it definitely came from Kansas.
1: Oh, I see. So you could make that argument.
0: Maybe. I, don't, I think that's kind of sketchy, though. Because usually when things wash out to sea, it's not like they're floating for miles and miles. Usually, they if they don't it's make near it that the far.
1: border, <laughs> that's true. It could be a different state's dinosaur.
0: Figure out where the like geological currents were going. <laughs> there you
1: go. <laughs> in another part of the world, over in Thailand, the Independent published a review of Phu Viang, which is a national park in the northeast part of Thailand that has dinosaur fossils. There's a pretty cool picture of the entrance. There's a big wooden sign that says Fu Weang Dinosaur Museum that looks kind of Jurassic Park-ish. And there's two sauropod statues peeking out from behind some trees. Nearby is also Chuancheom Resort, which is a dinosaur-themed motel. And the first dinosaur found in Thailand was back in 1976 at Fu when a geologist was looking for uranium and found a sauropod. Pretty happy discovery. <laughs> then excavations led to a bunch of dinosaurs being found. And now there's nine fossils that are under glass in situ that you can find if you're hiking in the area. Cool. Yeah. There's also the Fu weang Dinosaur Museum, which has a quote greenhouse full of animatronic dinosaurs. End quote.
0: Wow. Yeah, Thailand's um, really stepping good. up their game. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, we missed all that when we were in Thailand. We gotta go back.
1: We had no idea. <laughs>
0: I don't think it's near Bangkok either, which is basically the only part we went to.
1: We also went two hours north for one of the night markets.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, I hope it wasn't right by there.
1: Let's just say it wasn't. Okay. This next one, not a fan of, can totally sympathize with. It's about a goose. Can't trust those birds.
0: Nothing good ever. No good news story start with it was a goose.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, CNN published photos of a Canada goose flying into and attacking a high schooler who was golfing in Michigan. He was competing in a tournament and they were near a goose nest, and the goose came to protect its nest, which I guess I understand. But the student tried to run and tripped and so there's a photo of the goose flying over him and, you know, in a kind of attack position. (laughs) (laughs) The student, his name is Isaac Cooling, he said, quote, My clubs fell out and the goose guarded my golf clubs, so I had to finish with my teammates' clubs. The coaches had to go out with golf carts to chase it away while I finished the hole. (laughs) So Um, at least he wasn't hurt.
0: Yeah. There are pretty good pictures of it, though.
1: I would be so scared and mad at that
0: goose. Yeah. Geese are not to be trifled with. No. Although they're better than swans, I hear. So at least there's that.
1: That's true. Unless you're near its nest.
0: Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Although we saw, I think it was Canada geese in Southern California with their little hatchlings following them. And there was like a little girl chasing them around and the goose didn't seem to care at all. Even though the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that little girl's about to get attacked by a goose.
1: That's true. And we were really surprised.
0: Yeah. Cause they were little tiny hatchlings, like only maybe four or five inches tall and still all fuzzy covered in that, you know, little baby cute bird fuzz. <laughs> yeah. Maybe those geese were more used to humans. Could be. Or that little girl's just very lucky. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Caught him on a good day. Yeah. Next, Garrett found a fun new, it's a dinosaur-ish song. <laughs> it's called Dinosaur. It's by the band More Giraffes.
0: I really like that title for a band. Yeah,
1: it's a good one. <laughs> so the song's not really about dinosaurs. There's only one line about dinosaurs and the line is I'm a dinosaur, but it's a really catchy and modern sounding tune.
0: Yeah, it's good. I like it. It's probably my favorite recent song that includes anything about dinosaurs.
1: Yeah, I could probably listen to it a few times in a row, and not get sick of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I did do that and still enjoyed it. <laughs> There's also some good They Might Be Giant songs that include dinosaurs, but those are older.
1: Sounds like there might be another dinosaur movie coming out. So Bolivar, which is a graphic novel about a dinosaur living in New York City by Sean Rubin, is being turned into a movie. And we've talked about this book before. It came out last November. It was listed on the New York Public Library's Best Children's Books of 2017. And it's about a girl named Sybil and her next door neighbor who is a dinosaur but nobody notices he's a dinosaur because they're all so busy. Anyway, Fox acquired the movie, rights. So not too many details yet, but that could potentially be really cool.
0: It's kind of like a stop and smell the roses sort of message. I guess. Maybe kind of like that idiom will be replaced with stop and notice the dinosaur.
1: (laughs) It sounded like Part of the story was the dinosaur has to decide whether he wants people to notice him or not.
0: It was a T-Rex, right? Looked like kind of a Barney style T-Rex from what I remember.
1: I don't know if it's a specific type of dinosaur.
0: Well, it's upright with tiny arms. Yeah. And a dragging tail. Yeah. Like a Godzilla.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of dinosaur movies, there's a new movie coming out. This summer, called the Jurassic Games by Uncorked Entertainment, and it blends Jurassic Park with Hunger Games.
0: I'm excited about this. You are? Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> in the film, Death Row inmates have to fight dinosaurs while on live TV. In VR. In VR.
0: You left out the VR. That's an important detail.
1: <laughs> Is that why you're excited about it?
0: No, I love that they're combining so many things. That's what I like. It's
1: going straight to digital.
0: So, you know, it's good. The people can't wait.
1: And DVD. How does that work with VR if it's DVD? It just doesn't?
0: Oh, it's not. You don't watch it in VR. The people in the game oh. are fighting dinosaurs in VR. Oh, goodness. Yeah. They didn't like actually bring dinosaurs back to life. They're virtual reality dinosaurs coming after the people. So you can't
1: actually get killed.
0: I don't know. I'm assuming they're going to do like a Matrix twist on it, where it's like if you get killed in the game, you get killed in the real world too. Mm. That's what I'm guessing, because they're on death row and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe like the winner just gets rewarded with no longer being on death row anymore. Something like that. We're going to have to watch it and find out. I'm excited.
1: (laughs) So it's straight to digital June 12th, and then DVD July 3rd. And the tagline is win the games, win your freedom.
0: Yeah, see, there we go. It's like Spartacus. A
1: little bit. I mean, it's a pretty good tagline. The dinosaurs, I think they looked pretty good in the trailer.
0: Yeah, they did. The That's T-Rex, the real reason I'm excited. To yeah.
1: <laughs> the T Rex is pretty accurate, right? Mean, it's got some feathers.
0: Yeah, they all looked really good.
1: Yeah. Just the rest of the movie, I'm not so sure about.
0: Most of the dialogue wasn't really exciting.
1: We've watched worse.
0: Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) it reminded me of a straight to sci-fi channel kind of movie one of those like sharknado sort of things
1: oh that's really popular
0: highly enjoyable not you know like cinematic excellence but still you can have fun with it (laughs) it's not gonna win any academy awards or anything
1: it's not trying to yeah yeah very true and last Because every week is a week closer to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom coming out. So we always seem to have some kind of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom news. (laughs) Indeed. This week, Neil Scanlon, who designed the creatures for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, gave a tour to LA Times. And he worked closely with J.A. Bayona and David Vickery from Industrial Light and Magic to make the dinosaurs. And apparently, Colin Trevorrow wrote scenes that were meant for animatronic puppet dinosaurs. So there was this emphasis on having more practical effects. And that would explain why last week we were talking about how they've got the most, I guess, animatronic and puppet kind of stuff since...
0: The first Park. one, yeah.
1: Yeah. Bayona said that he noticed kids talk about the textures and colors of dinosaurs, and Scanlon said that they wanted to show how our understanding of dinosaurs has changed, which is really cool. So, for example, showing dinosaurs in brighter colors. And Scanlon and his team created a T-Rex for the movie, we talked about this last week, as well as animatronic versions of the new Indoraptor and of Blue, the Velociraptor. It took 15 puppeteers to bring Blue to life, which is crazy and they were below cable levers and a radio control mechanism and they had to rehearse their movements for each scene so that the dinosaur could move according to Bayona's directions while they were shooting Scanlon said quote like a dance team we're not thinking about the individual steps we're just doing it you're thinking about it in a much more consuming way like can you make her more aggressive can you make her more agitated Can she breathe more heavily? It's like music in an orchestra. Everyone knows how to bring up the crescendo, end quote.
0: I feel like agitated is the only one I can handle, because then if you screwed up, it would just add to the agitation. (laughs) It's getting all twitchy and angry. (laughs) Everything else would just look agitated if I was puppeteering it.
1: Seems like you have to be incredibly coordinated, 15 people.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. I can't believe it's 15. That's nuts. They have like one guy pumping each lung. (laughs) Oh, yeah. or <laughs> I don't
1: know, but I will be watching Blue very closely when we see the movie.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I do think that that's actually a big difference between the first movie and some of the later movies, because in the first movie, there were those scenes where like the doctor puts her hand on the Triceratops face and you feel like that sort of connection between the character and the dinosaur or in Jurassic Park, The Lost World, where they're carrying. The baby T-Rex, some of those are the most memorable to me, those scenes.
1: Or the dead sauropod in Jurassic World.
0: Dying, yes. Yes, dying. (laughs) Yeah, that was really sad. So I think it makes a big difference, because otherwise it's just these monsters battling each other, or just chomping a person down real quick, and then you don't see what actually happens. It's not much of an interaction there. But yeah, when you can get really personal with a real puppet or animatronic, that's when it really kind of hits home, I think. So... Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Niponosaurus, which... This is another dinosaur that appears in the Jurassic Park or Jurassic World series. And we are continuing this until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom comes out. So Nipponosaurus appears in the Holoscape Interface in the Innovation Center in Jurassic World. And it probably lived in the Gallimimus Valley. It was a, in real life, it was a Lambiosaurian hadrosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now the southern part of Singorsk Sakhaland Island. Hopefully I pronounced that right. That's in Russia. And that was actually part of Japan, specifically Karafutu Prefecture, when the dinosaur was named, but then that land was annexed to the Soviet Union in 1945. The name means Japanese lizard, and you might guess why. It was named in 1936 by Professor Takumo Nagao from the Imperial University of Hokkaido, and the name refers to Nippon, which is the Japanese name for Japan. It was the first dinosaur named based on a specimen found on Japanese territory, and it was discovered in November 1934 during construction of a hospital. They found a juvenile specimen that was about 60% complete and included dentary, skull elements, vertebrae, and parts of the forelimbs and hindlimbs. It's hard to figure out when exactly it lived, but based on mollusks that were found nearby, it probably lived around 80 million years ago. The type species is Nipponosaurus sacaliensis, and that species name refers to Sakhalin.
0: So it's Japan and Japanese island dinosaur.
1: Yes, except now that island is part of Russia.
0: Yeah, it's not even safe to name the dinosaur after the place you found it because the place can apparently change ownership. Can't name it after what you think it looked like, how you think it acted, or where it is because they can all change.
1: <laughs> yes. So when Nipponosaurus was discovered, they didn't find much of the skull or limbs initially, so they actually had to do a second expedition in 1937, and that's where they found more limb material for the holotype. And then Nagao described this material in 1938. There was a humerus found in a pit near Hashima Island in Japan that was referred to Nipponosaurus in 1967, but it hasn't since been studied. At first, the Nipponosaurus found was thought to be an adult because it had coossified sacral vertebra. But then later on, scientists doubted this because the specimen was so small. And some scientists think that it doesn't have any diagnostic characteristics, anything unique about it, and therefore that makes it a gnomum dubium. And a review of Japanese dinosaurs in 1994 suggested that many Asian hadrosaurs were incomplete and may actually have been the same species. But Nipponosaurus was redescribed in 2004 and found to be a juvenile and a valid taxon. And the redescription said that there were three diagnostic characteristics— although some scientists refuted it, saying that those characters were found in other hadrosaurids. Then it was re-examined again in 2017, and that confirmed that, yes, it was a juvenile, and they found an additional three diagnostic characteristics, or new ones, I guess. And they found a wide structure on the lower jaw, small neural spines, and short legs. And so in 2017, Ryuji Takasaki dissected three bones the femur rib and chevron and found only two lines of arrested growth which is what showed it to be a juvenile nipponosaurus was about 13 feet or four meters long and it had a hollow head crest though remains that were found were incomplete so it's hard to know details the reconstructions are usually made based on comparisons to similar dinosaurs because the specimen found was a juvenile it's possible the head crest changed as it matured it was Probably buried in a marine setting not far from shore based on terrestrial plant fossils found nearby. And because of this, Nipponosaurus may have lived on low-lying plains near the coast.
0: We'll have to see what kind of a role, if any, it might play in Jurassic World.
1: Sounds like it might be small.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or non-existent. But maybe if this island that they're on... Oh no, because they're on the island in the Caribbean, right? Because it's supposed to be Isla Sorna or Nublar, the original island... And our fun fact of the day is about my favorite group of dinosaurs, Thyreophorans. And I had been wondering, you've got Stegosaurs and you've got Ankylosaurs. And when you combine them, they are both Thyreophorans. That's kind of the common ancestor is the Thyreophoran group. And it makes you wonder, hey, Stegosaurs have these big plates, Ankylosaurs have this armor. Is there anything in common between the armor and the plates? And it turns out, yes, there is. So, both the Stegosaurus plates and Ankylosaurus armor are both osteoderms. It just turns out that the Stegosaurus plates are kind of these highly modified osteoderms. The osteoderms on Ankylosaurus are much more common. You see them in crocodiles and even some sauropods and things like that, just sort of low body armor, little bumps. And then on Stegosaurus, they've grown (laughs) like straight up, really narrow. Very strange looking for osteoderms, but still just osteoderms. And on the inside, they're kind of spongy so that there's lots of space for blood vessels.
1: So does that mean because there's talk that maybe Stegosaurus could blush or change the color of its of its plates, could Ankylosaurs blush or change the color of its armor?
0: Maybe. I think that would probably be based on the covering over the surface of it. And so that would depend on what kind of fleshy material is on the outside, I'm guessing on Stegosaurus it might be a little bit more likely just because the plates wouldn't be that effective of armor and they look a little bit more like a display structure than the armor on Ankylosaurus. And on the Ankylosaurus I should say on the notosaur, also known as Borealopelta we saw some keratin sheaths over the surface of some of its armor. and I don't think any animal could ever make keratin blush. So that one's probably not going to blush, but we don't really know exactly what's over the stegosaur plates. If it's keratin, then it might not be able to blush. But then again, we have keratin over, like our fingernails are made out of it. So you can see skin underneath that if it's real thin. So if they had something similar, (laughs) Sabrina's shivering, (laughs) then maybe they could do some sort of display. It's hard to say.
1: All right. (laughs) I'll try not to think too much of how close my skin is with my fingernails. I don't know, for some reason. Anyway, and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also check out our show notes for a link for our giveaway. And if you want to get any premium content and behind-the-scenes stuff, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.